Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise and join today. Today, my guest is T.T. Cole. T.T. is City's CEO of Legacy Franchises and is responsible for overseeing the bank's consumer businesses and colleagues in Asia, Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and Mexico. T.T. is a 30-year veteran of the financial services industry and has broken many barriers in her career. She is the first Black woman to serve on City's executive management team and was recognized among the most powerful women in banking by the American banker. She has been a longtime champion of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts and co-leads the City Women Inclusion Network. TT joined City in 2020 and prior to that held leadership roles at Wells Fargo, Bank of America, BMO Harris Bank, and McKinsey. TT earned a bachelor's degree in economics while in Nigeria and MBA from Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. She also serves on the Board of Trustees of the Queen's University of Charlotte. TT, welcome. Um, thanks for doing the show with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, JR. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's been a very long time since we worked together. And it's always fun for me to do these kind of conversations because it gives me a chance to catch up with people who I worked with a long time ago. And you know, it's great to see what they've done in their careers and hear more about that. So thank you again. So let's talk about your current role. So what is it and how is it advancing City's overall strategy? Yeah, so I have the privilege of leading our legacy franchises organization. And that is essentially our international consumer businesses where we have made the strategic decision to divest, to focus on five interconnected businesses that really reflect the globality of the firm and simplify the firm. And so, you know, we are a tangible expression of the bank simplifying. These are great businesses that have performed very well for decades in many countries, iconic businesses. But as we think about the value proposition for city for our clients, they need to simplify in an increasingly complex world. We have focused on five interconnected businesses that actually benefit from a global connection. And consumer banking internationally doesn't really have synergies across countries. And so my job is to execute that part of our strategic refresh and help simplify the firm. What made you want to take on this role? I know it wasn't your first role at City. No, it wasn't my first role at City, but it was my second. And it came down to two things. Okay. Impact and leadership. Impact because this was going to be one of the most immediately tangible demonstrations of simplifying the firm, mm. which was a key part of the strategy that our new CEO rolled out about a year and a half ago. And so to get to be on the front lines of delivering that simplification was very compelling from an impact perspective. And the second reason why I chose the role is this role really has allowed me to put to practice 
I would say everything I've learned in the last 30 years in financial services, leading through change, motivating teams through difficult times, staying focused on what's really important, delivering for the clients. So it was a great opportunity to take everything I've learned over the last 30 years, working across a range of roles in financial services and actually bring it to bear and lead. When we started this journey, 65,000 great employees at City through mm-hmm. what would probably is the most impactful career change that they didn't ask for. Right. And to get to lead them through that with pride and a focus on excellence and empathy has just been a great opportunity and one I couldn't say no to. When you're in those situations, and I've worked with people before who've had to deal with a business that's being wound down or being spun out, it's hard, right? It's change for the individual people. What are the biggest challenges that you faced in the role so far? And, and what are you learning from, from dealing with those challenges? Yeah. Yeah. So if you think about the backdrop, you know, when we announced a strategic refresh over two years ago and where we are now, it's been a very active geopolitical environment. Mm. Think about the war in Ukraine. Think about increasing tensions between Taiwan and China. And just think about the state of the world economy. So one of the most impactful things we've had to navigate is just how do you keep this agenda moving forward in a world of increasing complexity, geopolitical tensions, one of the countries that I'm responsible for is Poland, which as you can imagine is right next to where the war has been in um, in Eastern Europe. And also navigating the economic cycle as we've had a threat of a recession, maybe a mild recession in parts of Europe to a looming recession in the US, which could have knock-on impacts in Mexico, which is also one of the franchises I get to lead. And so the biggest piece has been navigating the geopolitical and also keeping our employees who, again, have done an amazing job for decades. A lot of them have been at the bank 20, 30 years. City is a really, really important financial institution, not just in the U.S., but especially outside of the U.S., quite frankly, because of our presence for decades mm-hmm. in 95 countries. And so helping our employees understand the decision and then embrace the decision and execute on the decision. But I would say the biggest source of pride or joy that I've found in this role for the last 18 months has been leading our teams through the stages of hearing about the decision, the sadness invariably, to then the acceptance, and now embracing the future. And because we've been able to have you know nine signed deals out of the 14, Uh, We've got great buyers for these great franchises. I now get to see them as they exit the organization with a lot of pride about what they've accomplished. Mm. And they're going to be great city alum forever. And just the opportunity to lead them through that career transition has just been incredibly impactful. And so it's really been an amazing experience, not just for me, but my entire leadership team and also for the employees who are in legacy franchises as they now move on with pride towards what's next for them. Is there a timetable to all of this that you're working toward, or are you just trying to make sure you you do the transitions in the right way without a firm timetable? We do have a sense of urgency around this. I think there's Mm. an absolute imperative to simplify the firm and also not to prolong the uncertainty for the teams unnecessarily. So the good news is we have nine signed transactions. Seven of those have actually closed. We have two more that will close this year in Taiwan and Indonesia. We've also announced that we're winding down our businesses in Korea, 
Russia and China, and those wind downs are progressing very well. And again, these are the consumer businesses, with the exception of Russia, where we have announced that we're exiting the, the country. And now we've got two other transactions that we're still working through. Mexico, we announced that we're going to be doing an IPO. We announced that last month. And then Poland, where because of the geopolitical environment, it's taking a little bit longer, but we look forward to restarting that process later this year as well. So we are making great progress in simplifying the firm. And really by the time we get to next year, we'll be down to our Mexico IPO, which is well on the path towards that. And then the Poland market to resolve. Yeah. So you've had a chance. I mean, you cover, as I said in the introduction, a lot of the world. And so I would imagine that you've had a lot of opportunity to compare what consumer banking really looks like in different parts of the world. How do you see the bid playing out in different parts of the world? Where are the innovations happening? What happens with things like branch banking? You know, where do you see it all yeah. going? I will tell you, digital transformation, technology enablement continues to accelerate, not just our industry, but a lot of industries around the world. You know, as I look at footprint in legacy franchises, a lot of the innovation I see comes out of Asia. They're way ahead in mm. terms of global interconnectedness, payments, digitization. You go to parts of Asia and you try to bring out cash and people look at you funny, like, what is that? <laughs> so they're way ahead of where I would say we are in, in the States and a lot of, especially around payments, global payments in particular. And as I think about the future of banking, I think you'll continue to see a lot of technology enablement. I do think the branches will continue to have a role. But as you and I know from our days at McKinsey, it's less around service and it's more around consultative sales and advice when it mm. comes to branches. And when people have kind of high value, high impact, high ambiguity type transactions or decisions to make, they do like coming in. It could be a branch or financial center. It could be, but they do like that personal touch. So I do think the personal touch, even as technology continues to accelerate, will be important in our industry. And, and even through it all, if I think about the last 30 years, the things that the consumers care about remain consistent. If you think about consumer banking, there are three themes that resonate worldwide. Access and convenience. You know, that was around mobile, that's about technology, that's about 24-7, that's about let me enable me to do the transaction smoother, easier, with less friction. That right. continues to be a theme. Show me you know me. Relevant, personalized solutions that are tailored to my needs. So being client-centric and making sure that the sales, the service, the capabilities really are tied to addressing client needs. And third one, keep me safe and secure. You know, mm. as we saw recently in the States, there was a huge flight to quality uh, for right. the large banks as a result of what happened with Silicon Valley and First Republic. And that's a reminder that says, you know, regardless of the innovation and all the things going on in the industry, these are consumers' financial assets that we have the privilege of being custodians of and making sure that their data, their information, their funds are safe and secure must still continue to be top of mind for all of us in the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go back to the beginning of your career. I know you grew up in Nigeria. What led you to banking? Yeah, so I was born in the States, but I grew up okay. in Nigeria because my parents are academics. And uh, after their PhDs, they went back home. And, and I grew up, I was a college kid. I grew up on a college campus. And my very first job was in our industry in Lagos, Nigeria. I was an econ undergrad. And banking was one of those industries then where the banking sector in Nigeria had just been deregulated and you went from having kind of three large state-owned banks to 
those plus a whole lot of what we would now call fintechs, which were kind of mm. the startup banks, right? And that really was the place to work because they were more modern, they were bringing new capabilities, they had kind of less ties into into the kind of the physical infrastructure. They were hiring lots of young undergrads to really help innovate. And so for me, that was a natural coming out with an economics undergrad. And then a couple of years later, went to business school at Kellogg at Northwestern. And as you know, the pitch coming out of business school for a lot of us was consulting because you get to learn about a whole lot of different industries and do different things. And and so I bought that pitch as you did as well and and ended up at McKinsey Chicago. But then a couple of years, about six years later, after I had my children, I decided that traveling every week was not a good idea. Yeah. And and at that point, I had done actually most of my studies in financial services. And I went back into financial services at BMO Harris in Chicago mm-hmm. and right back into the consumer part of the industry, because that is the part of the industry I love because of the sense of purpose around helping consumers, you know, save for retirement someday start their own businesses, lift out of poverty, invest in their communities. And that sense of purpose is really what has kept me in the industry for about 30 years now. Yeah. You know, go back to some of the things we were talking about a minute ago around the branch banking and why people have always valued the branch. You know, there is neighborhood banking means Mm -hmm. a lot to people, right? Mm -hmm. And as global and digital as the world is today, that's still a really important piece. And certainly the underbanked, which has been a big topic in the industry in terms of being able to bring the kind of services into the neighborhoods that maybe haven't had the kind of banking services that that the wealthier areas of a big city like a Chicago Mm -hmm. have had. That's been a big focus for the industry for many decades now. So it's good that you spend some time focusing on that yeah, uh, absolutely. In, in your time there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And your city, it's about the how do you enable access, which is part of our, mm. our focus around economic progress for all. And access could be through branches. Access, thankfully, is also through a lot of the digital channels and access around making sure the products themselves are accessible to all, right? So mm. when we say, you know, we're the first bank to do away with overdraft NSF fees, it's because we recognize that those fees can be more punitive, especially right. for low-income consumers and can be a barrier to access to being able to use their checking account. So that ability to drive convenience, drive access, relevant value propositions, and keep consumers safe and secure as they invest and build towards their goals is, is again, why I love consumer banking. When you think back to your early days, how did people help you along the way? Oh, I had lots of help. <laughs> and we anybody all, we, who says- We've all had lots of exactly, help. Exactly. Anybody who says they didn't, they're not self-aware or they're just delusional because you really can't do this by yourself. You know, for me, foundationally, I'm a working mom. I am very fortunate that I married a guy who is very hands-on and we built a partnership where we both worked all the way through our kids' childhoods and all the way through very recently and still were able to raise our families. So that support system for me, I would say, was a foundational element. And, and especially for working mothers, having a really good support system is critical to being able to, what I say, call stay in the game, which is continue to focus on what is really important to you, your family, but also use all those talents and skills you have in the workplace. With a support system that's strong, you have a good shot at doing that. Without a support system, it gets really hard. So so I always start with that because I had a really good support system and that made it possible. But then in the workplace, I had people who took interest in me. Some looked just like me. Some looked exactly the opposite of my demographic, 
but they took an interest and they leaned in. And, and I would always say three things that mentors and sponsors have done for me that really helped. One was they gave me feedback. Feedback is a gift. And, and sometimes women or underrepresented minorities don't get feedback because people are a little bit maybe hesitant or not as engaged in their development or just not sure how to approach feedback. But feedback is a gift that allows you to continue to refine, you show up how you engage and become a better leader. So they gave me feedback. The other thing that they did is they helped create opportunities. It could be opportunities to be part of a project. It could be opportunities to speak at an event. It could be even more recently opportunities to join nonprofit boards. Mm -hmm. But mentors and sponsors have always been very active in helping create opportunities for me. And it's something that I have taken on as doing for others because you have to pay that forward. And then the third thing I would say people have done for me in my career, including most recently our current CEO, Jane Frazier, is they have at the right times given me that nudge out of my comfort zone and to say, look, it's time for you to do this. I think you can do this. I think it's going to be a great opportunity for you. And that's where growth has happened. So I'm in this role because our current CEO said, you know, I, I want TD to do this. I didn't raise my hand, but she leaned in and said, no, it's time for you to do this. You're really good at what you do. And I think that translates into this role. And it's been probably the most impactful role I've had 30 plus year career. Which is an amazing statement in and of itself. You talked about mentors and sponsorships in that last response, and it would be helpful. I think a lot of people don't really understand the difference between a mentor and a sponsor. How would you define the difference between a mentor and a sponsor? Yeah, I do think they're two very important parts of what people kind of call your advisory board or people rooting for you, but they are actually quite different. So I think of as a mentor, as somebody, they could be assigned formally through mentoring programs or informally through you got to know each other, who on a regular basis gives you feedback, gives you advice, may even create an opportunity for you, maybe. But yeah, and they're helping you along in your development. And by the way, a mentor could be somebody who is more senior to you. It could also be somebody deep in your organization who's mentoring you on a specific skill or mm -hmm. helping you have a certain experience. Sponsors, though, I think is a much, much high impact level of advocacy. And I like to think of a sponsor as they essentially are putting their stamp on you. They are sharing some of their credibility and saying, I not only advocate for this person, but I am willing to actively say, you know what, this, is, this person is good. This person has my support. This person is credible. So in some way, they're lending their cloak of credibility to you. And that yeah. creates a much more compelling platform for growth. So sponsors do tend to be people who are more senior to you in the organization who can really open transformational doors for you and are almost kind of vouching for you, right? So I think a mentor is important, but the level of credibility and credence that a sponsor carries and personal accountability for you because they're essentially saying, look, I vouch for this person. They're really good. I sponsor them. I advocate for them. So they share in the potential risk of you working out or not. Yeah. So there's a level of advocacy that sponsorship lends that's a little different from mentorship. It is really different. And a lot of people will focus on having a mentor. Not even everybody does that from my experience, but too few people really think about that notion of sponsorship. Mm -hmm. You know, they place their career in the hands of their manager, right? And single threading yourself through just one person and depending on them to kind of control the next part of your mm -hmm. career 
is usually not the best option. I think it's always helpful to have a broader group of, of people, mm-hmm. as you said, personal mm-hmm. board of advisors, whatever you want to call them, but also some people who are maybe a bit more senior than your manager who are looking out for you. Yeah. And I you know I think, you know, mentors can be assigned, right? So you have formal programs. Right. You can't really assign a sponsor because no. again, lending your personal credibility to somebody else, you kind of got to know them and be sure what you're vouching for, right? And again, sponsors can be in your organization. They could be people from different spheres of your life, but they generally have, have gotten to experience your leadership. They've gotten to experience you in action to then be able to feel comfortable being a strong advocate. Yeah, very true. Let's switch gears a little bit and just talk about leadership. You've had a number of roles in several different banks, very senior roles. How would you describe your leadership style and how has it evolved over the years? You know, I always say this is a question that maybe is better asked for people on my team. Because <laughs> yeah. well, they're not here with us to today. They're not here <laughs> with us. So I'm going to have to do my best. But I think if I reflect on feedback I've gotten and 360 feedback and informal feedback, you know, if I were to describe my leadership style, I would say it is inclusive. I would say it is engaged. And I would say it is a leadership style that is adaptive. Mm. Right. So, and those things, especially the adaptability, things I have worked on and learned and gotten better at over years, because I think it's a journey. I don't think there's any perfect leader that, you know, everything is figured out. So I think of myself as a student of leadership and I'm constantly learning in organizations or roles or situations I'm in. And sometimes you learn amazing things that you would want to do. And other times, just as impactful, you learn things that you will never do when you're the leader. So I always tell people like, regardless of how difficult the situation might be, there's always an opportunity there to learn, even if it's just what you won't do, right? Because sometimes those are the things that actually make you a better leader. And so as I think about how my leadership style has evolved, there's always been a strong sense of curiosity, a strong sense of inclusion because of my background, where, you know, I showed up in corporate America as the other. (laughs) Mm. So I understand what it's like to be the other and try to have a white tent. I'm very, very focused on on women in the workplace. I grew up with sisters. So so there's some natural elements that I've always had. But as I've gotten more senior over the last decade, the notion of adaptability is one that has really, really sunk in, which is it's not just about, well, here's my leadership style and here's who I am, but you have to flex across cultures, across situations, and across different personality types on your team. And so when we talk about diversity and inclusion, it's not just a typical race and gender, but sometimes it's just processing style and problem-solving style. And the leadership adaptability is about being able to meet my team where they are. And there's some people where I say X, Y, Z, they get it immediately and they're off and running. I don't need to check in. And there are others with different problem solving styles where it's a different approach. And part of leadership is knowing how, who you are, but you have to flex and adapt both to the environment, to the person, to the team you're leading, and also the cultural uh, conditions are very different in a Vietnam versus a Mexico versus in New York. And and part of that leadership adaptability is figuring out how to be effective within all those different local contexts. Yeah, I think you make a great point there. Culture, situation, the people you're dealing with, that just being adaptable, adapting your style in all of those situations is incredibly powerful. I see too many leaders who try to have a, too much of a one-size-fits-all approach to managing their teams and you know, as you said, everybody's a bit different. They learn differently. They work differently. And if you're going to meet them where they are, to use your words from a minute ago, 
you really need to adapt around that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What do you see as the most important decisions that you make as a leader? The people decisions. You know, as a leader, you're only as strong as your team. And so I spend a lot of time <laughs> thinking about our team, the skills, how we work together, how we complement each other, hiring and firing decisions when you have to make them. But the most important decisions I make are around the team. Who's on the team? What are we rewarding? What are we recognizing? What culture are we building? And what do you see? The people decisions are really important. What do you look for when you hire people into your organization? So, at, you know, at these levels that I hire in, I assume technical competence, mm. right? So I'm not screening for the most brilliant boy or girl in the room. What I'm screening for things like self-awareness, collaboration, listening skills, flexibility in their approach, how they think about working on teams, decision-making. Those are the kind of things that I'm screening for. Less around technical expertise. You know, I learned this at McKinsey. You probably remember it, but there was one, you know, they have these phrases that we talked about for six years and they are a handful that stick with me. And one of them was from an engagement manager. So probably, I don't know, my second or third year at McKinsey. And he said, we don't do brilliant jerks. And that stuck with me. And throughout, every time I'm hiring for the last 20 plus years now since McKinsey, I play back that tape is, I don't want or need brilliant jerks on my team. We don't need that. Yeah. Brilliance, yes. Jerks, no. And the kind of work we're doing, we don't need brilliant jerks. <laughs> we want people who are smart and motivated, but also want to work with other people and collaborate to get things done the right way. Yeah. So I screen out brilliant jerks. Yeah, I maybe think about it in some ways similarly and in some ways differently. I really put a premium on people who are low drama, right? I think the problem with brilliant jerks is they always bring drama with them. And yes. drama is a massive, massive time suck, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, which you really don't want to have as a leader. So yeah. how do you think about spending your time? As Since we're talking about time now, where do you try to focus the time that you spend? So at work, I, if I had my ideal day, and it's not always, I, I would spend at least half of my time with our team, with my clients, and maybe another 20% with what I call external stakeholders, the industry, our regulators, folks that matter in DC, and then another 25, 30% in kind of the internal workings of things we have to do. And when I talk about spending time with the team, working through the things we have to do, but I do like to spend my time with our team, with the clients, and to make sure I'm not just insular, but I'm also connected to what's going on across the industry and with our key stakeholders. As you were coming up the ranks, I'm sure there were some things that you worked on developing. You talked about learning to become more adaptable. What are the strengths that you were able to draw on again and again as you progress through these different roles over the years? Now, as I think about the last three decades, some of the things that I would say are hallmarks that have helped. So to your point, strengths, you know, one was I've always had a strong sense of curiosity, right? So every single day, it's about what can I learn that's new, questions that should be answered. So that strong sense of curiosity has kept me learning over the last 30 years, right? Which, which just makes you a much more interesting leader, a much more effective leader, because you're pretty plugged into what's going on within your organization and also outside your organization. That really guides against insularity. So, so there's that just a natural curiosity and right. a quest for learning has made a difference for me. The second piece is, I think some of it is my cultural background. Some of it is just my personal attributes. On my Briggs, I'm one of those people with the Fs. And I remember mm. at McKinsey, they're like, oh, Fs have a really tough time here because you're always feeling stuff. 
<laughs> and it's really hard when you have to make tough decisions. I'm like, yes, it's really hard. But I'm a very empathetic person. And so I come at team situations. I come at problem solving from not just the what, but also the how. Right. So the brilliant answer and the great answer, but how are we going to execute this and how are we going to communicate this and how are we going to lead our people through this? And I think having a natural bent towards thinking not just about the what, but the how and mm -hmm. how it's going to land on the different stakeholders has really helped me in terms of being able to drive change effectively without breaking a lot of eggs and a lot of drama and a lot of noise, getting things done, but getting things done the right way in a way that also builds a lot of collaboration and followership. And then the third thing I would say has probably been a natural strength has helped is just because I have shown up in corporate America as the other, I have a strong sense of how do you bring people together? How do you reach out across the different silos and get people to work together? The leader who's always going to ask, oh, have you talked to that group about that? Well, let's just check with that, right? Because I just have a natural instinct for who needs to be engaged? Who is not engaged? How do we bring them together? So I think those things have helped to have be able to drive change in large, complex organizations to build strong followership, which is important as a leader. And then finally, to really have impact. Apart from that, focusing on a, a being more adaptable in your style that you talked about a little bit earlier, what are the other areas you've worked on developing? Listening better, being a better listener. I'm fairly quick at things. And so early on, it was like, okay, this is what we need to do. And, and now we're off to the races. And I've had to work on listening. I've had to work on making sure, right? Patience, what's the question behind the question? And not assuming we've got it all figured out. And that's why, again, learning to, as we brought more and more people into the problem solving, you actually see the power of much more comprehensive, holistic solutions. So, but early on, listening in particular was something I had to work on. Yeah. active listening, not just kind of racing ahead in my mind to here's where I think you're going. And here's what I'm going to say in response, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You talked about, about leading through change earlier. You've been involved in some fairly transformative things over the years. How do you cope with and lead through change? I have, I think, a natural bias towards change, which helps because I tend to come at change from, oh, great, this is an opportunity to do something else or learn something new. That helps. And the natural bias towards change comes from that curiosity and that need to learn new things that I talked about. And so change by definition, is going to expose you to something that's different from the norm, which gives you this opportunity to learn at least about something. Even You might not like it, but it's going to be different. So the natural bias towards change helps. But a couple of things that I also try to keep top of mind when going through times of change, either professionally or personally, one is, again, you're going to learn from this one way or the other. <laughs> There's a lesson, there are learnings, and those things help you be stronger and more resilient. The second thing that I've learned as I've gone through navigated, especially kind of difficult change, is you have to keep perspective. No matter how challenging the situation is, this too shall pass. Right. And when you go through actually really hard times, you build this amazing muscle of resilience where you're going to look back and like, well, if I got through that, then the next version of that is not going to be as challenging or as threatening because you know that you've navigated through even more yeah. difficult environments, right? So that sense of this too shall pass, nothing lasts forever. You can get through anything for whatever period of time. And coming out of it, you're going to be even stronger for that next change, that next opportunity. And, and as I said at the start, you're probably going to learn something from it 
that if you hadn't gone through the experience, you wouldn't have. And so it's a yeah. net positive. I mean, I think that, you know, this notion of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable that you hear people mm-hmm. talking about, talked earlier about every now and then you need a nudge and came to you about this role, mm-hmm. right? Wasn't mm-hmm. that you necessarily raised your hand for it. And all of those experiences that will feel hard at, in the moment, you do come out of them stronger and Absolutely. you learn from them. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you're more confident about the next time you're facing a high degree of change. I know you're really heavily involved in diversity efforts at City. You've made reference mm-hmm. to being the other in the room a number of times mm-hmm. in the conversation and just that that's really important to you. What are some of the ways that City is working to promote diversity and equity and inclusion? So, you know, I would say I've been very fortunate, really right from our time at McKinsey, to work at organizations where there was a pretty active agenda around DEI. And being that leader who was always going to be involved, even before I was senior, right? So I would be in the networks. I would join the mentoring programs to mentor people. I did campus recruiting because I always felt the need, one, to pay back those who did that for me and came through campus recruiting and interviewed me and hired me. And also the need to continue to push for change in our industry. Financial services is still, we've made progress, but we're not where we need to be. And it's not just race and gender, it's sexual orientation. It's all the different diversity dimensions. And so in every firm I've been at, I've been very involved in this work because I think the work matters And not just for reasons of virtue signaling or whatever, but because it actually research shows that it drives tangible outcomes and we should represent the communities we serve. And when we do, we're able to come up with more relevant tailored solutions for them back to the show me, you know me that I talked about with our clients at the start. And at City, you're proud of the work that the firm has done for decades and continues to accelerate under Jane's leadership. As you know, we're the first bank with a female CEO. That's a major bank. But it's not just having Jane in that position. Our board of directors is over 50% female. We set three years ago and publicly communicated goals around Black representation in our C, uh, as manager plus levels and also gender female. And we exceeded that and we actually have transparently shared how we got there. And then we set new goals now for the next five-year horizon and added more categories, including the first bank to have goals around early campus recruiting for LGBTQ team members, right? Like no other major bank has that. But beyond just the work around representation, it's really embedding this into a business strategy. And so when we have business reviews, we talk about clients, we talk about financials, we talk about risk, we also talk about people. And part of the people segment is how are we doing on hiring, recruiting, DEI in every single business segment. So it is part of our business strategy. We're transparent about where we're making progress and where we're not. And we've also made sure that we're not only driving diversity in terms of representation, but doing the work around a more inclusive culture, creating a culture of belonging so that you not only hire a more diverse and workforce, but they actually feel like they can develop, you can retain them, and they can be promoted and thrive at City. And so, again, we've made great progress. We're not at end of job, but I am really proud of the work that we do. Ultimately, people want to feel like they can bring their authentic selves to work. They can find a sense of belonging in a a company that they're in. How do you bring your authentic self to work? 
Well, I learned early on that I really didn't have a choice. <laughs> you know, there's that saying like, be yourself, everybody else is taken. But even beyond that, I am so different from the norm when you say, you know, executive or banker or whatever. I'm a Nigerian American woman with a name called Titi Ko, which throws people off. I'm almost six foot tall. <laughs> I have a Nigerian accent. And so on, on so many levels, right from my days at McKinsey, I'm going to stand out. And I learned early on that just being who I am and trying to be the best version of myself every single day was so much more effective than trying to be somebody else. Because there's a lot of mental baggage and filtering that happens when you're trying to be somebody else. But the key is authentic self doesn't mean that you're not learning and growing and getting right. better. And authentic self also doesn't mean that you're not flexible and adaptable. Right. So I show up as my authentic self as this Nigerian American <laughs> banking executive who works really hard with her teams, but also is a working mom and talks about how important her family is, who is a runner, a music enthusiast and yogi and, and all the things that matter to me. I show up as my authentic self in the workplace and I talk about those things and that normalizes the dialogue. Um, yeah. In the workplace about, you know, we are much more than just bankers. We all have things we care about and people we care about and all the experiences that we've had inform the person that we are. I feel like we've come a long way. We still have a ways to go, but we've come a long way from the days where you wanted your leaders, especially your CEOs, to be infallible, right? There was that distance that they worked at keeping the sort of steely-faced, mm -hmm. hard-edged, never let them see you sweat <laughs> kind of thing. And man, that must have been really hard. It was hard, the, right? Because they were humans, right? But they right. had to hold up this persona, right? Yeah, yeah. And it also meant that people didn't really feel connected to them because I always say to feel like you're going to follow somebody and you want them to lead you and you're inspired by them, you kind of have to feel like you know them or at least yeah. know, not be best friends, but like you, some connection to them. And if all you get is this like box persona that doesn't show any emotion or feelings or talk about anything personal and they're just tough as nails, then like, how do you connect to that? It is really hard. And I feel like we're all in a much better place now where you don't have to create this illusion of being perfect. I mean, you certainly, you need to bring your best self. You don't necessarily get to bring all of your baggage. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot easier for people to relate to you if they understand what's important to you, right? Yes, and they exactly. see a little bit of you and the way mm -hmm. that you lead. You've highlighted a little bit. I'm curious, you know, you're in a demanding role. You've been in demanding roles. What do you do to recharge your battery and keep yourself energized? Apart yeah, from the yeah. yoga, I would imagine yeah. that's part of it. <laughs> yes, it is. And I learned that I'm a much better leader when I actually take the time for the things that energize me. I'm a better wife, mother, all those things. So for me, it, it falls into two buckets. One are things that are energize me physically. So I'm a runner, outdoor runner, at least a couple of times a week in wherever I am. If I'm allowed to go outside, there's some parts of the world where it's a little less safe, but 90% of the, of the year, I'm a couple of times a week, I'm outdoor running. I'm slower every single year, but I'm still out there. I do yoga that calms me, but that also allows me to run relatively injury-free. I love music. So on any given evening, if I'm on my sofa, wherever I am, I'm listening to music. Those things center me, relax me, ground me. And then family and friends. You know, I love spending time with my kids. <laughs> they're that age now where they're entering the workforce. So we have fascinating conversations. Yeah. And, and then back to the support system, my husband, my sisters, what I call my tribe, which was just this amalgamation of friends. And some we worked together, others we met in different parts of life over the last uh, three decades. You know, I have a really strong support system 
of folks that make me laugh, cheer me on, inspire me, challenge me, keep me grounded. All those things energize me. Last question. Any last career lessons that you'd want our audience to take away? Last career lessons. So I feel like we've talked about a lot. But as I think about a 30-year journey and 25 plus of those being in in corporate America, so to those who are coming, right? So the, the next generation is coming through. I would say three things. One is stay on a lifelong learning journey. Then you'll never be bored and you'll always be growing. And you'll always be prepared for what will inevitably be over decades of twists and turns because corporate America or corporate wherever you are listening to this is going to go through a series of transformations over the coming decades. But if you're on a lifelong learning journey, you are constantly acquiring new skills, expertise, networks, and things like that will allow you to thrive through the invariable twists and turns. The second thing I would say is relationships matter. Prioritize not just the what, but the how in building relationships and networks. And not just at your employer. It might be people you went to school with. It might be people you meet, social circles. Build and maintain relationships. You know, they could be peer-based relationships. They could be relationships with people more senior, relationships with people deep down your teams. You never know where you're going to meet them. But the world is surprisingly small and relationships matter. And then the last thing I would say is tap into purpose. I've stayed in this industry for roughly 30 years now because I really care about what we do. If I didn't, it would have been really hard because our industry, financial services, has gone through a lot. Um, And I think at least my third major crisis in terms of financial crisis in my working time, right? And I've stayed in it because I care about what we do and at our best, how we enable consumers achieve their hopes and dreams and lift generations out of poverty. So for me, that's my why. Find your why in whatever industry, and then it'll feel less like work. And yes, of course it is still work, but that sense of purpose will get you through the tough days and there will be tough days, but that sense of purpose makes a big difference. So find your why. All good pieces of advice. So we will wrap there. This has been really good. I'm really happy we had a chance to reconnect. Deeply appreciative of your time. And yeah, thank you again and have a great rest of your day. It was really great catching up with TT just now and having a chance to talk about what she's doing at City and the great things that City is doing around the world and also her own career journey and the things that she's learned along the way. So much good advice in there for anybody who really wants to take control of their career and make the most of it. And that's really what Pathwise is about. So if you want to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. It's free. You can sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.